0: This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Mastering Innovation on Business Radio.
1: Hello and welcome. You're listening to Mastering Innovation on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Harbir Singh, co-director of the Mac Institute and a professor of management. Just a reminder, we are live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, and the show replays a few times throughout the week. If you have any questions during the show, give us a call at 1-844-WARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So for those of you just tuning in, we're listening to Mastering Innovation. I'm Harbir Singh, and I'm thrilled to welcome to the show my first guest, Mehdad Bagai. Mehdad is the global CEO of High Resolves, a social venture which he found, co-founded with his wife in 2005. He's also the chairman of Alchemy Growth, a boutique strategy firm advising large companies on their growth strategies. He's the co-author of a New York Times bestseller and Wall Street Journal bestseller and as one, as well as international bestsellers, The Alchemy of Growth and Granularity. Mehdad, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: It's so nice to to have this opportunity to talk to you. And actually, I'm very familiar with your alchemy argument. Uh, In fact, uh, that's the Three Horizon model that I think um, was part of that discussion, right?
0: That's exactly right. Thank you. That's very kind of you.
1: And, uh, you know, can you tell us more about what Alchemy Growth does?
0: So Alchemy Growth is essentially a consulting firm, a strategy consulting firm, but I think one of the things that we have seen is that as the large consultancies, the, the the strategy houses, have really become transformation program managers, mm-hmm. and more and more of their work has focused on running these massive transformation programs, which are highly profitable. Mm-hmm. They haven't um, spent as much time training the next generation on strategy, mm-hmm. so, whereas you know in my my generation, uh, we would have done I don't know dozens of strategy projects by the time we became. Uh, senior partners, uh, mm-hmm. it, it, people would not have as much strategy experience. So there's a hole in the market, uh, which we noticed was for pure strategy uh, work at the corporate level, mm-hmm. uh, and that's essentially where Alchemy has focused its its uh, work.
1: I see. And um, uh, so, when you look at High Resolves, uh, would give us just a quick summary of what uh, what the core mission is.
0: Well, um, our vision is generating. Uh, having a, next, a, a new generation of young people that are making a positive difference to the world. And when we um, founded the organization about 15 years ago, one of the things we noticed was there was a rise in hate, uh, in uh, divisiveness, and we knew that it was important to get young people to see themselves as global citizens, mm-hmm. as people who had a stake in the kind of future that was going to be created, and for us to train them in the kinds of capacities and skills they were going to need. To be a part of that, um, that future. Mm -hmm.
1: So what are some of the uh, sort of core initiatives you have? That's a wonderful kind of social mission. Uh, And by the way, many of our Wharton students here are deeply interested in social impact. And so, you know, but it's always a question of how to actually move the needle.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so one of the things we've actually tried to do is bring an entrepreneurial approach to our social innovation work. And so in Australia, where we started, we've now worked with over 300,000 young people. uh, And the work we do is all around immersive learning experiences that help them build the competencies in in the various citizenship areas. So, for example, how they can be more uh, have more of a collective identity, how they might be more independent thinkers how they might uh, understand social justice and become social advocates, mm-hmm. uh, how they might lead collective action. And the way we do this work is we um, have built immersive um, simulations that we run in schools combined with classroom-based curriculum and project-based work so that young people can really uh, develop some mastery of these new 21st century skills.
1: So it is, uh, how do you kind of scale a venture like this?
0: So you know it's actually interesting because the the work on the alchemy of growth, a lot of the frameworks that applied in terms of corporate growth strategy Mm -hmm. also apply to the kind of work we're doing. You know, so um, at the at the core of it is you have to have a proposition that's going to work in a single school uh, and make sure that it's it's powerful. So one of the things we have done over the years is we've really validated that our approach to immersive learning is very attractive, it's very impactful, and so schools have a desire to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And so we built a model where we would charge schools for the services that we deliver. Uh, and, um, uh, and as the number of schools would grow in a geographic area, you'd be able to have, if you want, a hub that is able to um, carry its own costs and mm-hmm. even, even some. So then as we grew the number of hubs, we created an organization in Australia that was self-funding. Uh, mm-hmm. So, to build a social venture which is doing for benefit work but is able to be self funding and doing that work, I think is, is a very important part of it. Uh, but, you know, if you want to grow fast, you can't really be limited in terms of investment to just your own earnings stream. Mm-hmm. And so, we have used uh, philanthropic grants as well as government support to really grow uh, the organization into new geographies. And that's, you know, new hubs in Australia as well as now we have grown to North America. We're in New Orleans, in California, in Toronto. Uh, We have a joint venture in Brazil and Mexico. And so, in in other words, the the funding that has come from these other sources has allowed us to expand the footprint. Uh, But we know that over time, the goal of each of these entities is to be able to also get to a self-funding basis.
1: So are the schools that are participating, are they private schools or are they public schools with government funding?
0: Um, All of the above. I mean, you know, and and I guess depending on the geography, the mix may vary a lot. Um, Australian public schools have much more discretionary income than the typical American public school. So in Australia, we have, I think, something like 80 plus percentage of our schools are public schools. Mm -hmm. Uh, In uh, North America, it feels a bit more like 50-50 because we charge much lower rates to public schools here. Uh, And so you need to have a, if you want a stronger private school base to be able to, uh, in some ways, carry the load so that you can offer a discounted price to public schools so that all all students can benefit from it.
1: So have you thought about training the trainer in some sense? Because, of course, you know, you could do this uh, through your organization, but it needs to be integrated into the curriculum and in some ways training the And maybe you're doing this, you know, sort of uh, providing skills to teachers and curriculum to them so that they can then help you scale it.
0: You're spot on, Javier. But basically, uh, if you look at the formula that I was talking about before, um, we talk about these three types of things, peak experiences, repeated practice, and real-world application. So the peak experiences, that's where we started doing a lot of work, are these immersive simulations. That's what we really charge for. Uh, one of the things we decided to do with High resolves is not charge for anything where we don't have a free alternative. And so we created a film-based curriculum that uh, we provide for free for any teacher that wants to use it, including the training that uh, is available online for that. I see. And that, the work that then follows in terms of repeated practice, that's all delivered by teachers in schools. And so we either provide all the curriculum and training for free, or if they want us to do professional development work with teachers, we might charge for some of that, whether it's delivered centrally or at the school. But it's a combination, if you want, of more premium delivered services and more locally delivered um work. And essentially our model as a not for profit is if we're if we have to send someone on the ground, either to deliver a program to students or to teachers, then we try to recover that
1: I cost. see. I see. So uh, it's sort but of but otherwise
0: a- if yeah, if the teachers want to do the work and take our material, we provide it all for free.
1: I see. In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Harbir Singh, and here with Mehdad Bagai, the Global CEO of Social Venture, High Resolves. If you have a question, give us a call at one eight four four 844 wharton That's one 844 So, Mehdad, you probably might have heard the opening of our segment on STEM education. And, of course, you're talking about, you know, much more uh, collective action and People understanding how to be, you know, how to help address the problems of society. Um, what do you think about sort of, uh, you know, enhancing educational standards? I think it looks like the test scores of children uh, in developed economies vary a lot, uh, despite similar per capita incomes. So, do you also see some sort of uh, um, leverage there as well and do you see some uh, opportunities
0: well I mean look I'm an engineer I was trained uh, you know in math and sciences so I'm always been a big stem advocate
1: now you went to Princeton right. I understand
0: <laughs> well yeah, yeah but I'm saying even in high school and so right. on you know math and science were really big for me and uh, so I'm a big advocate for stem I think that if we look at the the world that our children are gonna you know look for jobs in, uh, there's no doubt that the 21st century competencies people talk about are as important, if not more important, uh, than the basic numerical uh, quantitative fluency. You know? mm-hmm. So uh, the sorts of things that I worry about also including on top of STEM education are things like, for example, um, are, you, are the next generation, are they able to collaborate effectively with each other? Uh-huh. Are they able yes. to um, lead in an inclusive way? Are they able to advocate for people who are um, disadvantaged relative to them? Uh, are they able to think independently even when they're uh, being barraged by messages with particular manipulative intent? Mm-hmm. So yes. I think those are really important.
1: Skills. So much broader. Um, I see what yeah. you're saying. Yeah. But, but you yeah, know, then let yeah. me ask you a different question. I think it seems like uh, you know, with with the kinds of uh, you know diversions children have today versus um, years ago. Uh, I think that you, this is where you're speaking about collaborative skills, that the, much of that is individual, right? It is you with your device, your tablet or your gaming device, and your you might even be networked with other individuals on the gaming devices. And so maybe one of the gaps is uh, how you actually work with people in real time.
0: Uh, absolutely. It's a great point, Javier. I mean, it's kind of interesting because we have built a digital platform for allowing schools to source curriculum from lots of different providers. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so technology is a very important part of the B2B part of our model in terms of getting curriculum into schools. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the B2C part, um, like the the part where the work is actually done with students, we have all of our curriculum as an organization centered around real face-to-face personal interaction. And that's where we think the learning is going to be incredibly rich. Uh, and actually things like influencing styles interpersonal skills those are really difficult to develop purely in a digital kind of way and so yeah absolutely i see the very much the importance of things like simulations role playing exercises things that involve contact with with others as a very important part of the 21st century skills we're talking about
1: so tell us more about your book as one individual action collective power it sounds really fascinating and uh, drives, I think, some of what you're doing in high resolves.
0: Well, they're certainly related. Um, so uh, I wrote that book with Jim Quigley, who at the time was the global CEO of Deloitte. Mm-hmm. And when um, really Jim started that whole question by saying, you know, how do you get 250,000 people on the same page? Which is the issue he had as a CEO: is how do you get 250,000 Deloitians on the same page? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we developed a whole body of thought on collective action, which really boils down to how people uh, belong, believe, and behave. And so the core message of As One was that if you want to get collective action happening, people have to feel like they are one people, they're one cohesive Mm -hmm. group. They have to believe that what they do matters for the collective result. They have to sort of know that their role is important. And they have to think about working together in a similar kind of way, that they have some agreed rules upon how they're going to work together, if you want, from a cultural point of view that are consistent. Mm-hmm. And so the book was Designed as advice for CEOs. The work we do at High Resolves is consistent with that in the sense that we see young people as very important leaders in driving um, collective action and social change. And so we think the skills of being able to motivate, you know, dozens, if not hundreds or thousands of other people to work with you on important causes is an important life skill mm-hmm. for for, um, for young people. And so, yeah, so we help them learn and acquire some of those.
1: So uh, you've developed a curriculum or just some, uh, some tools to, that are being used at different schools. Um, uh, what do you see as the vision 10 years out? You know, this is what's happening now. 10 years from now, what do you see as a great outcome?
0: So in Australia, we're currently working with about 5% of young people. And we think in about five years, we're going to be working with about 50% of young Australians. That is a social experiment of a grand scale. I mean, to take half of the next generation of an entire country and get them to see themselves as active citizens trying to create a just and inclusive society, it'll be very interesting to see what happens uh, when you have that kind of tipping point in a country. But, mm-hmm. you know, we don't see ourselves in any way as being limited to one geography. You know, the work in North America and other countries, I think we, we hope that that will grow and get to scale. Mm-hmm. And we're trying some really innovative ways of... Uh, of of doing the work. Um, and so, for example, in Latin America, we've created a partnership with Cinepolis, which is the second largest cinema company in the world, as mm-hmm. well as Teach for All, uh, which you know is, is the parent network for organizations like Teach for America uh, or Insane, por Mexico. And so what we've tried to do in those, say, in Mexico, is have the high-results curriculum uh, complemented by film-based curriculum that you can see, students can see in Cinepolis theaters, They can then uh, do some work with Teach for All staff in schools, and then their project would be to create a one-minute video, something we call Videos for Change. Uh, So these videos are about social themes that young people care about, but the best videos would be seen, would be seen as trailers before feature films in Cinepolis theaters. So you're engaging yeah. the adults in the community in, the, in that as well. So I think we're going to be creative and innovative about the model, but the goal would be to deliver some kind of citizenship education to as many young people as we possibly can.
1: So you know, this is all one, I mean, this is wonderful, really, really impressive. Uh, and what I'm wondering is, even at five percent, or you know, five percent of a country's population is a lot. Um, what are, there are two, I have two parts to the question. You can take, choose any part you want to start with. One is what are some of the barriers you have encountered, and how do you, you know, how have, what 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 can you impart to us as listeners on how to manage those those uh, barriers to innovation? But the other one is, you know, when you start looking at collective action, successful collective action. Uh, a lot of people are interested in that. I mean, that's what happens in uh, you know political movements, and some people may feel threatened by that, or may feel like maybe I can channel this for my purposes, not all of which is positive. So you can take either of those to to start with.
0: Yeah, uh, they're both great questions. Uh, look, uh, it's interesting because uh, if you look at the kind of collaboration we're creating, we we've tried to create two major ecosystem collaboration. The first one is what we what i was describing to you in terms of our work in latin america and that's really when you're combining a number of different strengths from different organizations to make something happen Mm -hmm. now i think if what we were doing is picking a theme and then ramming it down everyone's throat in every location then that would sort of start to feel like the political kind of challenge you were talking about however the way we've gone about it Mm -hmm. is that local communities do their own survey they decide what issue they want to use this mechanism right, for? Right. So, for example, in Monterey, the issue that seems to be the number one issue has to do with violence, addiction, things like that. And so, we would create a string of learning experiences that would
1: would be around as that. closely resembled,
0: yeah, the local interest as possible. So, I think it's kind of it, it's being protected a bit from that.
1: Very I good. think the other big... yeah. By the way, my question us, was yeah. that that's a very good. Um, and it's I, of course I only expected that kind of response. But my question really is you know it's a bit like you know if you look at Facebook Facebook had certain intent but then people use Facebook for other 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 purposes right so once you have a platform others can use it for different reasons they learn from the playbook and modify the playbook for themselves
0: Yeah look i mean i guess it's it's possible in the sense that we're seeing it already right uh, mm-hmm. i mean if you look at society one of the things you see is just how many um, you know, attempts there are to manipulate uh, people into particular schools of thought, particularly yeah, exactly, right. dis- disliking other people. So one of the core things that you know, really is behind this program early on mm-hmm. is to get young people to become as independent-thinking yeah, people as possible. That's you know? the and core so,
1: point. Yeah, exactly. I
0: think so. I mean, one of the th- they've got to ask questions. I mean, one of the things we, we almost created a red flag for them is that if you're really only hearing one side of the story, it's unlikely that you've figured out the truth in it, mm-hmm. you know? And so one of the things we encourage them to do is, is look at multiple sources. So you're giving them of view.
1: giving them skills to sort of, uh, at yeah. a young age, to both be centered and, and sort yeah. things out. Uh, of course, yeah. people are still impressionable, and there's always a possibility of of course abuse but now let me ask you you about the
0: the firewall will be a little bit stronger there's Uh a little bit more resistance to the kinds of you know messaging that might be more manipulative
1: very interesting and then what about the first part about barriers to imitation to innovation
0: well so you know there's a couple of things i mean there's two barriers that i could identify for you and i know um you know there's a limited time but um one is how do you get collaboration in the sector? Mm-hmm. I know this is an issue you know, you've looked at in your writings as well. But mm-hmm. um, one of the things that we noticed was that in the not-for-profit sector, you don't see as much collaboration. But in this particular case, we had all kinds of uh, providers of educational curriculum that were mm-hmm. very keen to collaborate. So we created a digital platform called Composer, where it'll become available to schools uh, in March uh, for free. But it will allow almost like one-stop shop, for principals and teachers to source curriculum from, net, right, I think it would be about 30 providers by then, mm-hmm. um, and be able to you know, put the cu- curriculum in different combinations that fit what they want to do in their school. And so originally, I think two years ago, I would have said collaboration would have been a barrier, but I think we've seen that the willingness for people to work together is actually quite high mm-hmm. uh, when the problem is big. Uh, and in this case...
1: Yeah, I can imagine, because there are different agendas, yeah. there's... You know, you're, now you're, of course, much more well-known, but initially, you know, people wonder who are these people and what's yeah. their actual agenda, why are they yeah, doing this? The motive. Yeah, right? exactly. And exactly. Could, it could also be those who worry about, you know, um, influencing children at a very young age. They would worry about, you know, I use somehow challenging assumptions about yeah. religion and, you know, about values yeah. uh, and all that. Yeah,
0: yeah. Look, the the other barrier that we run across goes to one of your earlier questions, which is, um, you know, if you are relying on teachers to do some of the delivery, Mm -hmm. how do you make sure two things happen? One, that teachers have actually gone through some of the same training as the students have gone through so that they have examined their own mindset.
1: Train the trainer. Exactly. Right.
0: You know, but, you know, know, it it, would be very difficult to go into identity and race if you have not gone through it yourself and, yeah. you know, experience some of the things. So that's, I think, one issue is how do we um, find the time to make sure that it's not just rote training that's, you know, here's some curriculum, go and run it in class, but that um, the the teachers have the time to actually go through the experiences in a deeply personal way themselves so right. they can show up in a very powerful way and be present for leading the students through the work.
1: Right. So in your personal journey, you did, you know, uh, engineering, then you did public policy, then you did law, then you were a management consultant. So, of course, that's just a reading of your resume. But I'm wondering, what's your actual journey? What were the unexpected turns that our current listeners and our students might particularly benefit from?
0: You know, um, it's interesting because I'm 54 now. uh, Mm -hmm. And as I look back on the various turns that you described, uh, for the first time in my life, the different strands uh, have started to come together and make sense. So, mm-hmm. for example, you know, I I spent years thinking about growth strategy at McKinsey and mm-hmm. advising clients on growth programs uh, ever since, you know, with Alchemy Growth. Mm-hmm. I now have to apply all those skills that I learned in terms of, you know, trying to grow profitable businesses right. to growing this not-for-profit enterprise.
1: And it's not, and not it's easy to eat your own dog food, right? When well,
0: you, you know, in the same way. You like advise people, I, yeah. I wrote all this about collective action, and now right. let's actually try to create syndicates that are going to work together. Right. Um, so I think all that has kind of played through, but there's also the passion bit. I mean, I grew up um, as a Baha'i in Iran, mm-hmm. and for those of your listeners who don't know, the Baha'i faith is a persecuted minority in Iran. Yes,
1: yes. Uh, yeah. and
0: so you know, I was it's a global religion,
1: some. but it's persecuted in Iran. Yes,
0: it is in Iran. Yeah. So I was considered by some to be unclean or untouchable. Nice uh, and you know, as a seven, eight-year-old, those sorts of things stay with you. You know, like mm-hmm. why is it that, um, the, you know, otherwise really good people have this view of me and you know, and my uh, co-religionists? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I guess there's a part of me that wanted to inoculate society from the kind of hatred of the other, the kind of blind prejudice, uh, the really kind of yes, you know. And so, in some ways, what's happened is some of the questions I think that were triggered in me as a young um, child and as, as an adolescent, I've now taken all the skills from the various journey of life and mm-hmm. I've said, okay, let me do something about something that meant a lot to me uh, mm-hmm. and that is going to make a bit of a, a contribution to society. Very so it feels in some way like I've come circle.
1: Fascinating. And so your advice to our undergrads, you know, I'm actually a director of one of our undergraduate programs, the Huntsman program, which is dual degree, and the kids are incredible uh, in talent. Um... You know, the advice would be to sort of think about what your passion might be. You may not, you may discover it. You may not may not discover it yet, but that's one of the things, right? That you kind of uh, you can see a thread to something you did not see, uh, you know, McKinsey years maybe, right? And but you see it now.
0: Uh, I think so. I think um, you know, life will start to add clarity over time. And my advice to young people when they come to to talk to me about careers is. Something that I think this generation is actually a lot more comfortable with than our generation may mm-hmm. have been, mm-hmm. you know, which is um, they see life as you know maybe ten career changes in the mm-hmm. next ten decades or that
1: is five true. Decades. That's a great point. Exactly. Yeah. It's not. It's not that you join company X or school yeah. X and you stay there for the rest of your life, right? Or much yeah. of your working life.
0: Yeah. So look, if they, if, I think, if you approach work as opportunities to learn and build your capacity. I think the opportunity to apply that growing skill set to problems that you find interesting, whether it's for profit, commercial, or whether it's not for profit, or it's government work, wh- whichever the application is, mm-hmm. as long as they're building their skills over time and they become better at solving the kinds of problems that they enjoy, I mm-hmm. think that's a good um, career path.
1: Very interesting. I think so. Actually, that that's a great uh, piece of advice, and it's kind of tan. It's more tangible, right? Because you often tell people or you think about, you know, discover your passion, but I think what you're talking about is really sort of you have maybe, you know, a few different career changes along the way, or at least job changes, and, you know, you don't have to think linearly, therefore, you can, you can think about accumulating experiences or skills, and that's really a very good piece of advice. I want to thank you, Mehrdad, for a great conversation, and thank you for joining the show today.
0: Uh, It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.